0: Hello and welcome to Author Spotlight. I'm Rachel Berenbaum, author of *A Bend in the Stars* and the forthcoming novel *Atomic Anna*. And today I am so excited to introduce you to the one and only Claire Chambers. Hello, coming. Hello. hello, coming all the way from London, coming to us from London. I'm so excited. I'm going to tell you about her brand new book. Here's we were just talking about this gorgeous cover, *Small Pleasures*, right here. So, who is Claire? Claire Chambers has written eight novels, including Learning to Swim, which was adapted as a radio foreplay, and In a Good Light, which was long listed for the Whitbread Best Novel Prize. She lives with her family in Southeast London, and of course, this beauty, get a look at that cover, I love it, was long listed for the Women's Prize for Fiction. (laughs) So she has so many accolades, she's so impressive. Claire Welcome to the show. Please tell me what is your latest small pleasures. What is this book about? Well,
1: Rachel, it's the story of a uh, a journalist in investigating um, a virgin birth in the nineteen fifties. Uh, she's a she's a journalist on a local paper, and she's tasked with investigating uh, this young woman who comes to the paper claiming that her ten year old daughter is the result of a virgin birth. And in the in the process of um, investigating this and getting to know the family it sort of blows her rather arid existence wide open. And so there is a kind of miracle in the, in the story and, and the miracle is of the journalist Jean's um, reawakening really.
0: So um, just the way you said that, virgin birth, like without stumbling, without blinking, just sort of talk about, well, the book is about a virgin birth, right? That is exactly the tone of the book and why I loved it. Because those two words, virgin birth in and of themselves, are pretty fantastic, right? Pretty amazing, hard hitting. And yet you say them so quietly and they're written so quietly in this book. So can you talk a little bit about that idea? I mean, why did you decide that you, this is what you wanted to write about?
1: Well, I heard it, um, an interview on the radio um, many years ago, about twenty years ago, about this this London journalist um, who had broken this story in the nineteen fifties uh, about a woman who claimed that her daughter was the result of a virgin birth. She'd um, she claimed that she'd been in a, in a sort of sanatorium at the time of the supposed conception and and surrounded by women and couldn't possibly have conceived this child, but that here was this child, and so the paper ran a sort of competition to try and prove whether whether her case was true or false and they subjected her to all manner of tests um, well such tests as were available in the 1950s i mean if, if this was a modern story it would be all done and dusted in an afternoon It would, you know the, the dna test would be done and, and there'd be no mystery but they only had blood tests and serum tests and skin grafts and all of these kept coming back as as proving that the, this child was a perfect match with the mother um, so this was, a, this was the sort of seed that got me interested in this story. And I thought, what, what a great kind of basis for a novel where you, you've got this, you've got just enough science to, to almost corroborate her story, but just not quite. Um, and I thought, I, I really want to, how, how do I tell this story? And I decided that I wanted to tell the story of the journalist investigating it and make it about her life and, and how it intersects with the, the family at the, at the heart of this mystery and that it would be her investigation and her transformation that would be the miracle at the heart of this story. Um, and it just seemed to me such a good springboard for talking about women's issues and the role of women in the 1950s and the, the sort of virgin mother trope that, that's sort of so important in, in kind of feminism. Um, and it, it just seemed too good an opportunity to to pass
0: up. And I couldn't and even you- believe
1: that, that someone hadn't already written it, really.
0: I love it. And I'm so glad you wrote it. And um, you sort of jumped right into my next question, as if you could almost read my mind here. <laughs> but um, right. So here we have a woman who's claiming that this was a virgin birth. Right. And nobody's listening. And in the book you have Jean is the reporter, the one woman right there who's sitting at the table with all the guys. And they're like, ah, let's pass this to Jean. Right. No one else is going to cover this. And so often it is women are not heard, right? It's another woman who needs to step up and say, I hear you, I am going to look into this for you. And I think you captured that so well. Is that part of what you were thinking about? I mean, you, you presented it beautifully.
1: <laughs> yes, I, I, I had this idea that that Jean would be, a, a you know, temperamentally a skeptic. And although the men at the table, you know, the other male journalists, were, well, oh, you know, it's women's stuff, you do it, Jean. Um, she would take it seriously. And then having met... Um, Gretchen, the young woman at the heart of it, she would she would find herself very much warming to her and wanting to believe her and um, finding her very plausible and and rather resenting that the men's um, dismissal of, of Gretchen and and sort of wanting wanting it to be true for for reasons more than just that it would make a good story for her paper. Um, so yeah. she's sort of acting against herself in that she has she feels obliged to dig and dig to try and get to the bottom of it, um, while all the time getting closer and closer to Gretchen and her husband and the little girl. And um, the various kind of weaknesses and shortcomings in her own life are sort of cruelly exposed by by her meeting with this
0: apparently perfect family. Right, except for the virgin birth, the unknown father. (laughs) (laughs) But this idea of it takes a woman to hear a woman, I just loved. And I love that you made that at the heart of the book. Um, But similarly, we have Jean is a complicated character in that she is also very quiet. She has small pleasures in the world, right? I love at one point you talk about she has a sort of a trinket box of things that she's collected that she doesn't open. Right. So a beautiful hand cream, a beautiful perfume, whatever it might be, you know, a journal that she doesn't use. Um, And but she doesn't use them. But these are her small, small pleasures that she keeps secretly. Can you talk about that? Why did you keep them her secrets? Um, I just had this idea of,
1: I mean, I sort of, I'm guilty of this myself, of, of sort of hoarding things that are, that are too lovely to use. I mean, I think we all kind of do this in a way, you know, you buy a dress that you keep for best and best never quite arrives. And, and Jean just takes this to another level that she has this whole drawer of little treats, but they're only treats while they're unused, while they're perfect. It's a kind of virgin metaphor, really. I mean, it, it, they're they're virginal items yes, because yes. they're only perfect <laughs> as long as they're not used. Um, yeah. And and that's and that's her sort of way of using, you know, of, of treating herself. Occasionally, opening the drawer and looking at them. And there are occasional moments where she does breach the the surface of the hand cream, and you know, in in special occasions, and use them. But right. I, I felt that that was just a very telling um, character. Note for Jean, the, these this drawer of treasures too too precious ever to be used.
0: Yes, I love that symbol. Um, so, of course, the big question at a you know in the middle of this book when you're talking about a virgin birth is what is the purpose of men, right? What what, what purpose does a man serve in a woman's life? Um, uh, can you talk about how you thought about that a little bit?
1: Well, I I suppose the way I dealt with that in the book is is that most of the male characters are are kind of judged a lot according to how well they treat women and mo- and most of the characters sort of fall short in some way um you know that there, there are there are a few kind of good men a few good men that the, the editor gene's Jean, editor is a, is a sympathetic male character he's got daughters you know four daughters so he's he's had the, he's had the sort of male edges knocked off him by by overexposure to to young women over the years and you feel that this is what's made him a, a good man and Whereas, you know, the other men in Jean's life, her, her sort of, you know, her, her early lover who who is, you know, sort of multiply unfaithful and her, her own father who falls short. Um, you know, they're, they're all people who, who have slightly let her down over time. Um, and then she meets this new family and, and Gretchen's husband, Howard, who, who is another complicated, but also similarly um, a man of sort of frustrated potential. Um, that she she feels sort of kindred spirit with.
0: Yeah, so um, she is also a very modern woman in the sense that she's working and you know making ends meets for her, ends meet for her and her mother and supporting her mother, and yet she depends on her uncle who has given her, right, the, I guess, the money to buy their house and who sends a check or a money order, you know, once or twice a year, every year. So, I, you know, I kept thinking, well, I wanted her not to depend on a man. And yet this uncle is quietly in the background, right? Hovering.
1: Yeah. Well, that was just necessity. I mean, in, in the fifties, you couldn't, a, a single woman couldn't get a mortgage without a man to guarantee the, her, you know, the, the house. So she couldn't have mm-hmm. bought a house with her mother without the help of her uncle. Um, and I've kind of made her her not not a career woman out of choice really, but but out of necessity. So she, I don't think she would she would think of her career as that. She would think of it as a job that she just has to do to get to to pay the bills, rather than a fulfilling career that's that's enriching her. You know, it clearly isn't that kind of a job. But she she's very much stuck doing the the boring stuff like writing household hints and about the joy of vests and things. You know, um, lettuce. Yeah, think, yeah, slippers National that are broken. Salad week or something, yeah. and and things. So it, you know, her her fulfillment hasn't, you know, her career hasn't fulfilled her. She she's she's definitely in a state of of um frustrated potential. I would say.
0: I do think that is very that touches on the experiences of a lot of women, even you know today. This spoke was set right in the fifties, but who also just you know need to work in order to put food on the table or whatever. Right. You know, and, and so I thought you really captured that experience of mothering. She's caring for her mother, <laughs> but still being caretaker. Right. I just thought that was beautiful. Um, okay. So I have to ask you, this is one of my favorite um, quotes. It's a very short piece that you wrote on page one hundred, one one sentence. And you ask, why do women lie to protect themselves? Of course and i just love that one line right why do women lie to protect themselves so can you talk about this line because for me this line was like i have it underlined circled page dog-eared like why do women lie talk about well, that
1: yeah i think you think i think that that i think it's martha who who has that um conversation with jean she's a kind of spiky character and uh, and she would she would automatically assume that you know someone someone might be lying if they needed to and you know why wouldn't you if it's going to if it's going to avoid you being in trouble um and i think i think that that that's sort of it's in there in in the virgin birth um mystery uh, it, it's it came to me from when i was researching the original story about the, the woman who'd claimed that her daughter was a had been born as a result of a virgin birth and that the many other women who had come forward also offering their own stories but had been ruled out you know gradually and obviously they had sound reasons for very much wanting it to be true that that you know or wanting somebody to to believe them or to prove their case you know and i thought well you can see why that they might be in a lot of trouble if um if the truth came out and that and that was why they had lied and so I, I sort of I sort of felt that, that that Martha was was in a way one of the only people who who just assumed, well, you know, obviously some, someone would lie about that if they needed to, you know, why wouldn't you? Um but it had that had that sort of point of view had to come from someone else, not not from the, the main protagonist. Not from Jean.
0: I know, but I, I loved that it was in there. So um, I also thought that you captured very well this feeling of post-World War II, um, right? 1950s women, um, there weren't, a, right? Many men had been, boys had been killed in war. It was a very tough time. People were grieving, right? Trying to figure out, find their feet under them for a new time in life. Um, and you wrote another passage I just want to read so that our listeners can hear some of your beautiful writing and the way you describe things. I just want to read this paragraph or this page Um, It's on page 87, if anybody has the book. You write, um, while the three of them had been talking, she had glanced up the garden and been shocked to see a look of utter desolation come over Gretchen's face when she believed herself unobserved. The fit of melancholy, or whatever it was, had lasted a few seconds. As soon as Margaret called her name, she had snapped to attention, rearranging her features into the brightest of smiles. And I just thought you captured that moment because I think all of us have seen someone do that before, right? When they think they're not being watched, they're them true selves. They're in that moment of melancholy, that moment that right. so many people were feeling after the war. But then there's this pressure of, oh, but my child is calling and I will smile, right? <laughs> no matter what I'm feeling inside. Um, can you talk about how that sort of comes out in the book?
1: Yeah, I think that was, that was a, 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 the first moment when Jean realizes that, that Gretchen may well have a persona, you know, rather than that the, the front that she presents to the world is not the real her or is is just one version of her. And that mm-hmm. that's the sort of first moment that she realizes that this is the case and that there, that there is underneath her her beautiful and sort of polished exterior, this this inner sadness. Um and I, I just wanted, I wanted her to, to gradually you know, gradually uncover these things. And so that was the, that was her first her of inkling um, that, that Gretchen is more like herself than she had realised, because obviously Jean, too, has the secret sorrow that she seldom talks about, but is, you know, carried within her. Um, and I think and I think it's just very, very true that that we maybe maybe especially women are good at putting on a happy face to to make other people feel comfortable um, and it, it's just something that that you, you're taught you know to do to smile you know cheer up don't look don't look so miserable sort of thing um, and so I, I just wanted that to be just a moment that um, that just kind of I think little crack in reality where where Jean sees through to some sort of truth but she can't quite grasp what it is.
0: Mm-hmm. I think that yeah girls are taught that at a very young, young age to smile and wear a pretty dress and Right, show up, and and you did it. It's so quiet. The book is so quiet, and yet devastating, right? Because that paragraph is in there, and you capture that moment so clearly and so beautifully. And it is that quiet moment when you think that nobody's looking, and actually they are. So I really wanted to bring that out. So another thing that I would love to hear you talk about um, is you talk about the unofficial ant. Right. So um, this question of are you going to be a mother or an aunt or what is what is your, I guess, presence in the universe in life as a grown woman? Do you have to be a mother? Can you talk about that juxtaposition and how you thought about it in the book?
1: Yeah, I I thought um, that obviously Jean's attachment to the family and her attraction to Margaret is is a sort of result of her her own um, past and her sort of sadness about not being a mother herself and her her lack of role and the fact that her sister lives overseas and so she doesn't see her own nephew and niece um and you know so so even that role is slightly taken away from her um and so I felt that this was this was I think this was something that was quite common in you know post-war when there was a sort of surplus of women that the people you know just just sort of had more of an more of an involvement in other families' lives as a sort of maiden aunt um type. And people, you know, we used to call people auntie when they weren't our aunties, if they were unmarried women of a certain age, you know, that, that was the polite sort of um, form of address. Um, and I just I just like the idea of Jean gradually infiltrating this family ostensibly as a helper, as a as a sort of, you know free childcare. Um, a sort of mentor to the little girl. But there's also something slightly more self-serving about it as well as as becomes apparent. Um, So that that was really how that that idea came to me. Um,
0: Yeah, it's great. Well, because it really gets to the heart of motherhood also. Can Jean be a mother? I mean, I don't wanna give too much away, but there is this question of, you know, choices that she's made, things that have happened to her, right, without choosing. and uh can you can you talk about maybe a little bit about how you thought about motherhood for Jean? I don't want to give too much away with the abortion. Yeah.
1: Um, you know, without without giving too much away, I feel that that she she feels this this um this lack in herself that she's because also she's she spends an awful lot of time being a daughter and being being the daughter, the dutiful daughter of a demanding mother is is sort of is taking is kind of taking from her, but not giving. and and there are these poignant moments where she she looks at um Margaret's little white socks and her shoes with the shoe polish that's gone onto her socks. and she remembers her mother polishing her own shoes when she was a child, and she she realizes she'll never do that for anyone. She'll never get the shoe shoe polish and the rags out on a Sunday night and polish up shoes for the morning. And I think that that's just another feeling of this this wasted potential. That she that she suffers from um, and and why she feels this great attachment to little Margaret because she's almost the child that she should have had herself um it's sort of very clear that, that that's how she she identifies her um, and, and and gradually she she sort of has more and more influence over Margaret um, so yeah so that was that was really how how that kind of evolved from from Jean's need um, and, and this parallel between, Gretchen's Gretchen's uh, life as a mother and Jean's life as a non mother, and how how one tries to sort of um, almost almost as an interloper take over like the like the buying of the rabbit. She gets she gets a very sort of significant gift from Margaret, the sort of thing that maybe a, maybe should come from a parent, but she takes it on herself to to give, um, mm-hmm. and she's almost interposing herself into the into the maternal role. Um, yeah. And, and even feels feels almost maternal feelings for the rabbit, almost can hardly bear to give it away because it's, it's so nice and cuddly. You
0: know? Right. The weight and the warmth in her lap, I think you yeah. talk about, right? Yeah. It's like sitting there. Yeah. I mean, that was the other thing is she definitely, I don't know, there were these quiet things that she did, like buying the rabbit um, for Margaret that were actually very loud. And I almost wanted her to get up and scream or like run across the grass, like, I got you a rabbit. <laughs> yes, <laughs> You kept her so quiet. How did you do that? I mean, were you, I would have wanted to yell it. Well, I suppose because her
1: mother had already taken, taken all the fun out of it by pointing out all the things that were wrong with the idea of buying someone else's child a rabbit. So she'd really poured cold water on the whole scheme oh and, gosh. and made, and made Jean think perhaps this was a really stupid idea. Um, even, even though it had been she felt motivated entirely by by a sort of generous impulse um, it had suddenly been been sort of twisted by her mother um, and, and it made her think yes her mother was just the sort of person who would have refused the gift of a rabbit if someone had been kind enough to give it to them when, when she was little and so it immediately made her over identify with Margaret
0: right so I just want to talk about the mother for just a quick minute, um, because you know we've said that um, her mother, Jean's mother, is um, you know sort of she's the caretaker for her mother. Her mother won't leave the house, right? When we first meet her, she feels uh, ashamed what happened to her, her husband leaving her, um, you know, and sort of what happened in their marriage and everything. Um, can you just talk about the mother for a minute, and you know what role you think she she plays for you? Well, she's she's sort of um, a cause of uh, what I'd call a kind of soft imprisonment for Jean. I mean, Jean's yes. not,
1: a, not a prisoner exactly because she goes out to work, but um, she's, she is a sort of prisoner of duty because she, she feels having spent all this time out at work and leaving her mother, she then can't go out more than that. She can't yeah. enjoy a social life and freedom because otherwise her mother will be lonely. And She's always
0: there in every scene. She's like, oh, yeah. but mother, mother, I'm worried about my mother. Yeah she's she's and and Jean
1: has this idea of duty as as this sort of forbidding woman in grey with big lace-up boots to kick you with and and I think that's very much how how she sees you know she sees her life and her and there's this sort of simmering resentment for her sister who's was the one who got married first and escaped you know abroad which meant she's completely out of the frame as far as um looking after the, the elderly parent goes and and there really is no choice it's it's a sort of it's a it's a sort of bitterly accepted duty Jean's not quite selfish enough to just leave and abandon her mother, but but also she's not quite generous-hearted enough to do it with a really good grace, you know. So she does it with a, a slightly ill grace. And there are moments when she, you know, when there are moments of tenderness between them when when Jean's on, you know, realizes this and tries to make an extra effort. And then there's moments when she suddenly becomes, you know, bitter and selfish and furious, um, as we all do times time, yes. and the mask of the dutiful daughter slips somewhat. Right, um, And I think that just makes her very human.
0: Just like Gretchen's face, right? When she thinks no one is looking, <laughs> yes. right? It, okay. So we're going to move on for a few minutes because a lot of my listeners love to hear about the life of an author and you are very, right? You're prolific and super. I just want to talk for a minute about the Women's Prize for Fiction, <laughs> right? All these awards. What was it like to get that nomination and to go through that? Oh well, that was that was just absolutely wonderful.
1: It's just such a validation. I mean, I, I, you know, it, this is sort of a. I mean, it's not exactly a rags to riches story, but it's certainly I've certainly had about ten years in the publishing wilderness where I, I really struggled to get published. I, I had a sort of terrible kind of writer's block. Um, I, I didn't, you know, I, I spent five years writing something which didn't get anywhere, and then I had to start again. And I really oh felt, you know, that at the age of fifty, I. I probably would never be published again and that it publishing was a young woman's game or a young person's game um, and that all the editors oh. were half my age and you know you, you feel as though your, your bad track record is going to count against you um, so when I you know when I wrote this book and I um, had several publishers interested in it I suddenly thought actually no it's not it's not all bad news the industry is not completely fixated on debuts and youth you know there there is room for all sorts of different voices in publishing, um, and then to get this to get this nomination, which has a kind of literary kind of imprimatur, if that's the word, mm-hmm. I, I just felt like that that kind of really validated my my choice to keep going and to to keep writing when I could, when it would have been maybe easier or wiser to just think, you know, look, just put down your pen and stop it, you know. So I, I really felt kind of, you know, happy and and uh, you know really, really pleased and delighted. And I never expected that to happen or to, to get that far. And, and it just brought the book to the attention of, of more people who might enjoy it, which is, which is all you can ask for really from the whole publishing thing.
0: Thank you so much for sharing that. I really appreciate it because I think so many people it's easy to look at this book and to look at your bio and to think, well, this woman, you know, Claire is super, you know, established, fantastic, you know, successful writer. And it can imagine that your whole career has been successful. So for you to share that it has been a struggle is so special for us to hear. So thank you. Can you talk a little bit more about what's been the hardest part? I mean, you said you had I mean, writer's block. I can't even imagine. This book is so beautiful. <laughs> like, well, I spent, more? you know,
1: I spent four four years writing a book, which I thought was going well. And every time I went back and looked at a page or so, I would think, yeah, that's fine. The writing's good, but it it just wasn't wasn't cohering, and it wasn't. It didn't have a a really good plot. It had lots of subplots, but no plot. Oh. Um, and so, although I was, you know, bitterly disappointed when my publisher, my old publisher, turned it down, I wasn't completely in my heart surprised. But at the same time, I I didn't quite know what I'd done wrong, what I'd done differently from all my other books, which had worked well. Um, So it was it was very difficult to then start again and trust your judgment and and trust that you're not going to make the same mistake again. I think that was what was causing the block, the fear of of just repeating the same mistake. Um, So how did you
0: change your direction? How did you get back on there?
1: Well, I got I got a new agent who was was you know enthusiastic about the virgin birth idea and and she sort of gave me permission to to do things differently she, you know when I I've always my previous books were always fairly funny you know they were kind of romantic comedies I suppose and she she sort of gave me permission not to try and be funny she said you don't have to be funny you can just tell the story if you want Do do something differently and that that was a sort of huge weight off my off my back because I felt that the, that the virgin birth story at heart was not had a sort of melancholy about it and a Mm -hmm. sadness and and I couldn't really see how it could be framed as a comedy um so that that kind of gave me permission to do something different and then I decided that I to stop myself falling into this trap of just writing for years and years and not achieving I would I would plot the whole thing out carefully before I even started so I wouldn't I wouldn't be blundering around in, in this sort of Bermuda triangle that you get in the middle of a book if you haven't plotted it um and that that worked really well once I'd Ironed out all the kind of plot wrinkles, the writing then flowed much more easily. So it was just just doing something different. Don't just don't keep doing what you what has not worked. Do something different, and and that really worked for me. And I you know I think I found a, a better way of working now.
0: I love that the new agent also was that helpful. You know, mm, yeah, yeah. You worse. just
1: need somebody, somebody you haven't who whose enthusiasm you haven't already exhausted. Some you know somebody. <laughs> somebody new who you haven't you haven't worn out. <laughs>
0: <laughs> well said. <laughs> well said. So um I ask every author who comes on my show because my listeners love to hear this, what advice do you have for new writers or people just starting out? Well, I suppose it's it's what I've what I've been
1: saying. My, I suppose my advice is it, you know, it's it's a long game. Writing is a long game and don't expect don't expect results quickly you know when I when I sit down to write I don't sit down and think oh I've got to write a book I've you know I've got I've got to write a book I've got to write a book I just sit and think (laughs) I've I've got to write a write a really good page and if I write a really good page every day at the end of a year or two I'll have a really good book so I, I just try to think of it in very small deliverable chunks of you know achievement rather than trying to you know focus on you know, the, the far distant goal, Um it's just helps to have, have a near goal.
0: And then I, I always that. say
1: to people just that the only thing that's kept me going over the years is, is this combination of short term pessimism and long term optimism. I've always sort of thought with every book, well, this will just, you know, this won't get anywhere. But eventually, eventually, it'll all come good, you know. And I think if you if you can keep those two competing thoughts in your mind, it just stops you from going mad. Because, and and it's it's kind of paid off in in my case, you know. After thirty years of, of um, justifiable pessimism, my my long term <laughs> optimism has paid off, and and now you know things are things are slightly turning my way.
0: Definitely turning your way more than slightly. I think that's amazing advice to take it in smaller chunks as opposed to I have to write the whole book. That is so helpful. Claire, thank you so much for your time. I have absolutely loved talking to you today. I love small pleasures. For those of you who haven't read the book yet, go out and buy a copy now, read it over the holidays if you have time. Claire, thank you for joining me. May you sell many, many copies.
1: Thank you very much for having me, Rachel. It's been an absolute pleasure.